And then I felt remiss, as I shared with the leaders yesterday, that I know last week's lesson was supposed to kind of uh, give a little rundown on the Trinity and why we believe in the Trinity. And those verses certainly are shown in the New King James Version, which uh, those particular verses 7 and 8 are partially not really in the original text. So I didn't deal with them, but I know that Liz had wanted to deal with that, and so I wanted to touch the topic because the Trinity is absolutely a doctrine of the faith as based on many, many, many scriptures, and we don't need the First John passage to verify it. So I, I collected the verses that some of the leaders, uh, all the leaders, had them all give me all their verses, and I compiled them, and I've written them down for you here. So you can see, write them down, and go home and read them at your convenience, and I think you'll be quite assured that the Trinity is indeed a doctrine of scripture. We're going to go ahead and start on Second uh, John. Again, most people agree that the elder, and he does not give his name anywhere, but they agree that the elder is John himself. Because he was, it's in his style of writing, and he was probably the last remaining apostle. The others were gone now, and he's very old, and he didn't have to identify himself. They all knew who he was. He was older and wiser and the only one who had known Jesus in the flesh. So they really all looked to him. And in 2 John, we don't find any new teaching. There are no themes that haven't already been explored, even in more depth in 1 John. And the, the real value of the book is the fact that it shows us John's heart and what tremendous concern these topics were to him as he is becoming uh, approaching his time for his reward in heaven. And he wanted the people... Uh, uh, particularly, he was particularly concerned about the truth, about love, and about deception. Those are the three topics here. Deception was a matter of great concern to him. Well, now the elect lady, who was she? And you've talked about that. And, you know, there's interesting arguments to be made. And frankly, we don't know. And scholarship goes both ways on it. And it doesn't really matter. So I'm not going to review the things you've already talked about. The point is the Holy Spirit has preserved this text for us. And it is meant for us today. So we're going to look at it as coming to us, but I'm going to use the lady because that's what John used and so it sticks uh, true to the, the text anyway. And a lot of people do think it was an actual woman that he was writing to. And if it was, it's interesting that he wrote to a woman, isn't it? Because it, it probably is a reflection of the fact that we women perhaps are a bit more vulnerable to deception than men. And so we are to be on our guard and not fall for things. And I know that's true for me. My husband is always uh, wiser in some of these areas than I am. And so, uh, ladies, be on your guard. This is for us. Well, the time of the writing was after 70 AD. I hope you know what that important date was. That was when Titus of Rome came in with his legions, sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and scattered the Jews. And so the Jews were all over the place. And what was this going to mean as this scattering? What was it going to mean for the future church? And this was, again, a concern of John's as to what was going on. And the church was now almost wholly Gentile. Well, you can see John picking up his pen in his old age and writing First John and spilling out his heart. And then a short time later, he does it again. He gets out his pen. He writes a kind of a memo letter, a little short letter, spelling out some of these same themes again, saying, this is really important, people. Listen to this. It shows his heart. And then again in Third John, the last one, again, more like a memo than a full-fledged epistle that we're used to seeing. But it's to the point. These letters are brief and to the point. And again, the themes are truth, love, and false teachers. Before I get into that, I wanted you to have a chance to copy these verses on the Trinity, and I'll put it up later if you don't have them all right now, but I'm going to stick another one up there that you're going to look at, 
and I'm kind of doubling back here. I was waiting for you to get through that, but I had said I was going to uh, do something more with the Trinity, and I left those verses out last week, and this is an exposition of verses 6, 7, and 8 that I found to be very interesting in John Phillips exploring the epistles of John. And I kind of outlined it. He didn't have an outline, but I worked with it and adapted it and made it understandable. And I wish I could just hand you a copy of it, but I wasn't able to do that. So I, I've written this out, the witness of the Holy Spirit, how he witnesses to the Son. And I did talk about this, by water at his baptism and by blood at his crucifixion. So at his baptism, God the Father said, this is my beloved Son, of whom I am well pleased. And at his crucifixion, there was the earthquake and the the uh, people getting out of their graves and there was a rent veil and the the blood was shed at his crucifixion. So there, those were the two witnesses to the Son and the witness to the saints in heaven. The Father, who is the adversary of the world, the Word of the Son, the adversary of Satan, and the Holy Spirit, the adversary of the flesh. So we have the triune Godhead advocating on our behalf in heaven against the evils that we face on the earth. And isn't that an exciting prospect to realize that they're all going to bat for us against these entities. And then on earth we have the witness of the spirit, water, and blood. The spirit is where we believers uh, share in the baptism that Christ had. I'm sorry, the spirit is, is the witness in us, uh, the still small voice. That's the spirit's witness with us. The water is our baptism, like his baptism, identifying with him and we're saying, we are bearing witness to our belief in him. And then the, his blood was shed on earth for us, and now it pleads for us at the mercy seat. So those verses, they give you these things. Uh, verse 6 has Father, Word, and Holy Spirit. Verse 7 has Spirit, Water, and Blood. And this is how Phillips lined them up. If you write this down, read the passage, and think about it, I think it will begin to make some sense to you. It's, it's rather complicated, but I wanted to give that to you because it really helped me to get a handle on those verses, which I thought, what are they trying to say here? So there, I doubled back, and now I'm going to move on. And again, um, so going on to this week's lesson regarding truth, the first thing uh, we know that John had built his life on truth, and he desperately wanted to guard it for the generations to come. So we see truth in the first four verses five times. So that was the main thing that was on his heart. Well, there's nothing really more important than absolute truth. There's nothing more important in the universe. Everybody's looking for it. People don't know where to find it. What is truth? You've heard that question. What is truth? How can we find it? Well, John knew the truth, and we know the truth. We should know the truth. The absolute truth of Christ is the most important truth we can know, and the church is the guardian of that truth. And John wanted to see it guarded. Were to be the pillar, support, and uh, were to be immovable and unshakable to uphold and guard and proclaim the truth and the whole purposes of God, as it says in Acts 20, 27. Well, we must never compromise the truth, and that's what John was worried about with the witness, or the woman taking these people into her house, was she compromising the truth? He wanted that not to happen. I just repeat the most important truth is that we're all sinners facing God's judgment. Forgiveness comes only by divine grace, apart from works, through faith in Christ, through his atoning sacrifice, and the resurrection. And you know, there's a lot of things that are true, but those that's the nugget, that's the core, the essence of faith that must be proclaimed by people who are preaching. And if preachers, if you go to a church and they don't preach those things, there's something missing there. Because our salvation is apart from works through faith in Christ and his sacrifice and resurrection. Now verse 2 says, the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Well, it abides in us because we have Christ in our hearts and he'll be with us forever. And the truth of Christ is the real truth as opposed to false teachers. They've got some other truth. They don't have a truth about Christ. They, they bring you something else. 
While our life is to be controlled by our love for truth and a desire to magnify the truth and live for sake of the truth. Well, I was uh, interested in question 3D and E where it talked about what does it mean to walk in truth as opposed to believing intellectually? How can we know, oh no, it was D. How can we know truth from error and how would you explain it to someone outside the faith? I thought those were very, very important questions. Is it something that we need to really give some thought to? We need to be prepared. It says in uh, 1 Peter, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe that? Think it through and know why you believe. And why do I believe? I believe because the Bible rings true to me. It's consistent. The prophecies are fulfilled. The worldview that it gives makes sense. You know, the only thing that really makes sense is that nobody, nobody exists. That's the only thing that really makes sense. Apart from that, there's got to be a creator God. There, there's no other way. And we, since we're here, we know there's a creator God. How did we get here? We got here because God created us, and he gave us the answers as to why we're here. <coughs> Through his word, sent Christ to redeem us so we can know him, and now I do know him. And so the Bible, the Holy Spirit convinces me it's true. The testimony of the believers rings true in my heart. I know the change Christ has made in my life. I know the life he has given me. No question in my mind that the Bible is true because I believed it, put my faith in it, and it works. But we need to know why we believe what we believe. Uh, it says in verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, in truth and love. We see those grace, mercy, and peace greetings over and over again. Not all three of them always together, but praise the Lord that we have grace, mercy, and truth and peace. Because that's what Satan is up against that we have. That when he tries to attack us, we have God's grace, which is his, the uh, limitless resources of God on our behalf. His loving kindness, his mercy, tender mercy, his unmerited and unbounded favor, which cuts the ground out from beneath the enemy's feet. Note that the first sentence is John as addressing her. I'm going to come back to grace, mercy, and peace. Okay, we'll finish this. Uh, he's addressing her in truth and love. The Christian's deep mutual affection flows out of our shared commitment to the truth. Do you ever love anybody like you love Christians? It's amazing how we have a love for each other. I love to watch you come in and hug each other. What other groups do you go to where people go in and hug each other? I mean, we have a love that God gives us, and that's one of the joys of being a believer, but it's because of our shared commitment to the truth. And you know, we don't have the same kind of communion as those who don't know Christ as their Savior. It's just not the same. And it's not because we're discriminating, it's just because the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're sons of God, and we, bear, we can tell when we're with another believer. And I know some of you have unsaved husbands, and you don't have that kind of communion with your husbands, and that, that's sad, and I, I feel sorry for you, and I think we as believers should pray for our sisters whose husbands don't know the Lord, because what a wonderful day it will be for them when God puts his life into their husbands. Some of you have had your husbands come to the Lord in recent years, and you know the change that it's made in them. Now you have that communion with them. I, I look around and I see people whose husbands have come at different points. What a change it makes in your home when your husbands come to faith. So we need to be in prayer for the husbands that are, that are represented here who don't know the Lord, so that their spirits can be made alive by the entrance of the Lord of truth. This is another thing that I thought was I'll read that. It says, The limitless resources of God's loving kindness and tender mercy have been harnessed on the believer's behalf. God's unmerited and unbounded favor cuts off all the ground from beneath the enemy's feet. And peace is, the war is over. And I just love that. Because before I came to Christ, there was a war going on inside of me. And I was, it was raging, trying to decide which way do I go, what am I going to do with my life, why am I here. 
and now I have peace. And John is addressing that peace in his greeting because it was the war Satan was defeated at Calvary, and he can't cross the boundaries that God has set for him in our lives. God has said this far and no farther, and we're protected from his attacks. And uh, in the mercy is he won't let him go any further than we're able to bear, and we have a way of escape, which is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's a verse you all need to learn. Hopefully you all know that, but that's a verse that if you're being tempted, hopefully you turn to it and stand on it and rely on it and don't say, well, shall I do this? No, don't say that. Say, Lord, give me strength to do the right thing because the still small voice is telling you what's right. Ask the Lord for strength. Tell Satan to flee. And God's mercy will uphold you. Okay, in verse 4, he says, I read, uh, he talks about some of her children walking in the truth. And you think, well, what about the others? Well, maybe you address this in your class. But he didn't talk about the others because maybe he didn't know about the others. Maybe they're walking in the truth too, but when he saw those that were walking in the truth, he rejoiced. And when I get together with old friends that I haven't seen for a long time, my first question is, how are your kids doing? Are they walking with the Lord? I want to hear that, that they're walking with the Lord. And that is, it's such a joy to me that my own son is walking with the Lord. And it's such a joy to see families where all of the children are walking with the Lord. And then intergenerationally, I, I am so blessed. My grandparents were Christians on both sides, and my parents were Christians, and some of my great-grandparents were, but I don't know about all of them. The ones I know about were. So praise the Lord, he has preserved that seed from generation to generation. Some of you have come to faith yourself in your lifetime, and your parents don't know the Lord, and you're praying for your parents. But you know, you can start that godly line. You can be the first one in a long godly line as you pray day after day, as you mirror or uh, imitate for these people the life of Christ, walk in the light, your kids, we hope, will follow. But you know, your children are going to make their own choices, and you can't make them do what they don't want to do. So we pray for them, and you pray for them, and I don't want anybody to go home and beat up on themselves if your kids are not walking with the Lord and say, oh, what did I do wrong? Kids will do what they'll do. They've got their own minds. That's, that's the... Uh, yeah human condition of free choice. They will do what they will do. But you also can keep praying and they can't stop you from praying. And you know, I remember as a little girl, I shared a common wall with my grandmother as I became a teen because my grandparents needed a place to live and my dad built a room on the back of the house. So my grandparents lived just around the corner of the hall from me in a nice big sunny room and my grandmother had a rocking chair. And she would sit there and read the Bible, and then she would kneel down beside her walking chair, and she would pray. And she would pray, and I never heard anybody pray in my life like my grandmother prayed, and she prayed and prayed, and I'll never get away from that, and I never got away from that, because there was a time when I was older when I did turn away from the Lord. For 13 years I turned away from the Lord, but I could never get away from my grandmother's prayers, which I thought about so much, and I loved my grandmother and I respected her, and so that image of you reading the word, trusting the Lord, praying. Do your kids hear you get up early in the morning to get your Bible before the house is still quiet? Some of your kids are gone, but if you've got children at home, let them see you reading the word. Let them see you on your knees praying. They need to know that you trust the Lord in your life, that you're walking with the Lord. That's the best way for your children to come to faith is to see it lived out. Not just in word, but in action and deed. In a tender spirit, in love, from a loving Christian mom. It does wonders for kids. It just does wonders for their faith. 
So John rejoiced to see that faith. And don't stop praying. Don't stop praying for children. I know, I know you don't. But as an example, I would just mention, I, I'd run into a friend. I mean, I had a, a beautician for many years. I went to, I still go to her. She wasn't a believer. And I used to share faith with her. And some of my friends who were believers also went to her. And I knew they shared with her, too. And we were all inviting her to church year after year. And she never went. And she, and I prayed for her. And I said, I'm going to pray for you. And I prayed for her for a year. And I prayed for her for two years. And I finally thought, phooey, I'm not going to pray for her anymore. <laughs> and six months later, she came to the Lord. And it was probably because of her other friends who were faithful who kept praying for her. So don't stop praying for your unsaved friends. And she's walking with the Lord now. I still see her. And we have such wonderful fellowship in the Lord now. What a joy it is to see her life transformed by the love of Christ. It really is wonderful. But you know, she came to the Lord after her children were grown and so her children aren't walking with the Lord and that's often the case and I'm sure that's the case with some of you that you came to the Lord when your children were out of your home so they didn't have the opportunity to see your life lived out as a when they were with you in the home day after day as a believer but hopefully they see the change in you now well walking in the truth is in that verse that we just left for I guess it is refers to moving through life controlled by the truth equivalent to walking in the light and you know, it's much easier to study the truth or to argue about the truth than it is to practice the truth and walk in the truth. But he wants us not just to know the truth, but to walk in the truth. Revelation carries with it responsibility. And the clearer the revelation, the greater the responsibility to believe and obey it. Verse 5 here just them to walk in love. And that's the second theme here. And Christianity is all about love. We talked about that last week. Jesus insisted on it. He personified it embodied it, incarnated it, and the world has never seen anything like it. And its greatest expression was his life poured out for us on the cross. We're going to be celebrating that on Friday. When we're going to remember when Christ hung on the cross. That was his love for us in action, when he spilled his blood for our salvation. Well, love is the first evidence of a spirit-filled life. And our love needs to be not only a gooey feeling as we said last week but it needs to be action and he commanded us to love one another and if you start loving people in action the gooey feelings will follow christian love is an act of the will obeying god is simply treating other people the same way god treats you and i didn't say not the same way that they treat you treat them the same way god treats you that's loving other people in fact you can love people you don't even like and if you love them long enough you might even start to like them someday if people are rude, you need to be kind in return. And if they persecute you, pray for them. Do good for them. Now, if we followed our feelings, we'd be rude back and we'd say, forget you. That's not the Christian way. The Christian way is to love them. Let them see love in action. Ask the Spirit to control your will. Don't worry about the feelings. Ask Him to control your will. And you can do the things right. Well, now we come to the third message in 2 John, and that is to beware of deceivers. And the kind of deceivers he's talking about here is the kind who are trying to subvert the message of the church. Because that was what was really going on then. The message was new of Christ. It was kind of a new message, and there were people all over trying to shoot it down, changing the message, denying the basic teachings of the gospel. The main thing at that time was that Christ's dual nature as God and man was under attack. Well, today... There's all sorts of error that is around, and some of it's become institutionalized in some of our major churches. Things like uh, the heresy that the Bible is not inerrant, that it contains truth but is not verbally inspired. 
or maybe that Christ was a great example and we need to follow him, but that he was not the Son of God. You've heard these things. These things are rampant today. But as we said last week, if he's not God's risen son, we're still in our sins and there's no hope for us and we might as well go out and live like the devil because there's no hope for us if Christ is not the son of God. And then the other one is it doesn't matter what you believe. All religions are good. They all share in the goodness. We need to look at each religion and see what good is in that religion, what it adds to our understanding of divinity and so forth. But if it was true that any faith will save you, why did God come to earth to die on the cross? He wouldn't have done that. He would have let us use one of those easier ways, one of those ways that was easier for him. This was the only possible way for salvation. Well, as I said, denial of the deity of Christ's incarnation, uh, Christ's incarnation and his deity was at the heart of the deception then. And knowledge of the truth was key to recognizing the counterfeit. So again, we get back to the truth. Know the truth. If you know the truth, you'll recognize the counterfeit. We don't have to study all the counterfeits. They'll come up with new counterfeits, and we'll know their counterfeits if we know the truth. So we just have to know the truth. Well, today, some of the other pressures that we face that are tearing at the faith of people and that have been a problem in our generation that I've seen is this big push on, toward evolution. And that's not mentioned by John, but wasn't around in John's day, but it's one of the things that is trying to drive a wedge between believers and their children because evolution is taught as fact in schools today even though evolutionists themselves or I should say many biologists and scientists don't believe it and honest scientists admit that it couldn't possibly be true. I had a wonderful quote I was going to share but it would not fit so I took it out. <laughs> and it's, but it's a, a biologist who says I only believe in evolution because if I didn't I'd have to believe in God and I don't want to believe in God therefore I believe in evolution. He got the Nobel, pre uh, Nobel Prize in biology. That's what they want to believe. No God. Mechanistic evolution. But why does it cut at the heart? Well, we have to know how we got here. The fact is we're here. Where did we come from? Where, it's only two ways. We sprang from nothing or God created us. There's no other possibility and that's what this scientist said. There's only two ways. You sit around and look at a muddy pond for the next three billion years. Well, you'll see things springing from it because there's life there. Life is everywhere. But God created life and life doesn't come from nothing. If you get, you get sterile water, there's no life in it. Well, evolution confuses our children and causes them to question the word. And this is one of the things that hit me when I went away to college. And if you've got kids about ready to go to college, you need to understand about what's the problem there. Another favorite topic and a tactic that's used today to get at our kids to drive a wedge between us and our children to destroy the church in the next generation. You have that question about the one generation, are we one generation away from being stamped out? Well, the, the uh, secularists are trying to stamp it out in the next generation. One thing they're doing is to hypersexualize our whole society so that kids will get involved in sex, which goes against the faith of their parents, which means they have to deny that faith in order to remain somewhat true to themselves. Otherwise, they would feel like a bad person. They don't want to feel like a bad person. They go along with what everybody else is doing, and they follow the, the crowd. The crowd is going towards sex. Kids in school, apparently, I mean, it starts very early. and. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. You can't watch the news without seeing sex. It's everywhere. And the kids are falling for it. Now, not in a lot of our Christian homes, but it's the wedge that's being used. Satan lures them, tells them it's okay, don't be a prude. It's a deception to say that it's all right. It's a deception that God's word is not true. John says, beware of deceivers, be on guard. So I'm just saying, be on guard as to what's going on in your schools and in society. Prepare your kids for it. Remind them that God says be pure, remain pure until marriage. 
And that's the way. We don't compromise on that. I think it's Malachi said that when the prophet came, he would turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers. The hearts of the children are being torn away from their fathers now by these things and others, but these are two of the major ploys that are being used by Satan. And Christ can keep the hearts of your kids with you. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of prayer, a lot of alertness, so beware. Well, John was con concerned that confusion would set in and hard-fought spiritual ground would be lost. Now, he's concerned about the deception that would come into the faith. And, of course, even with your kids, as they're growing up, you work with them, you've tried to train them, and you want to train them to be godly. And if they get dragged away, there's going to be huge loss. They'll be lost in their lives. They'll be sidelined from the, the battle, the Christian battle for the faith. They'll lose their joy. They'll lose their reward. And we can do that, too, if we get drawn away by deceivers. We lose our joy. Deception of falling into sin. Satan tempts us, we sin, and we fall away. Don't do it. Verse 9, regarding abiding in the doctrine and turning away deceivers, he says, by, oh, by, by not abiding in the doctrine, he's referring to those who wanted to add special revelation. The word there means wanderer, where he says some of you have moved, gone away from the truth. They're wandering off. They think they got some new idea. And every once in a while, somebody comes up with a new interpretation or special revelation or whatever. But we get back to, does it say what the Bible says? Know the truth, internalize it, be aware of deception. And if somebody comes with you and they bring something that is not familiar, it's not the gospel message, he says, don't even invite them into your house or greet them. Now, that seems kind of strong for people that are supposed to be loving and so forth. But the point is, we don't want to encourage heretics. We don't want to give them ammunition. Suppose somebody came to your door and said, well, I just went to the Fosdall's house and we had a wonderful conversation there. You say, oh? And then you think, well, maybe I should listen to what you have to say, too. So you've got to be careful. Or if they came to your house and then they go to your neighbor's house. I, I spend some time at the mensal home discussing my faith with them. I know you'd like to hear it. Don't you be the one that they use as the example where I came and I talked with them and so therefore I'm going to come and talk to you. You recognize a heretic, you send them away. Don't be confused by them because he could, he could confuse you. But if you want to talk to them and sometimes we think, you know, these people keep coming to my door. I need to say something to them. Well, you've got to study. You've got to really know what you're going to say understand their faith be prepared be prayed up and keep them outside your door don't let them in your house give them a few verses and if they don't listen they'll leave they'll probably leave they don't want to hear from you they want you to hear from them that's what they want to hear from them well john closes with his stated desire to visit with his friend face to face so he wants to visit face to face you know it's wonderful to receive letters it's wonderful to get phone calls it's wonderful to get emails but there's something very impersonal about emails and very impersonal about letters. How much nicer it is to get together and go out for lunch, sit down and talk. And so we need to build that into our lives too. Time for our friends, time to just share the word, share the faith, re, uh, to encourage each other. And I hope when you get together with your friends, it's a time of encouragement in the faith, not just a time, and like our luncheons are. Our luncheons are always a time to build up our faith, not just a time to chit chat. Our luncheons are special, aren't they? They're, they're not the kind of luncheons we have with unbelievers. That's it. Praise the Lord. We know the truth. And he got us through this lecture. So I'm going to close. Lord, I thank you that we have had a chance to study this book of Second John. We pray that we'll take away from it today what you wanted us to hear, that we'll live the truth. And we pray especially for Liz and Ed and the whole team today, Lord. They've got these next 10 days or so. They're coming back on the 12th. We ask for journeying mercies and that everything will be accomplished that you sent them over there to do. Bring us back together safely again in a couple of weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.